a listener production. Okay, are you recording? Legends, you are listening to episode 137 of the Howie Games, part A, featuring the voice of boxing for 50 plus years, Colonel Bob Sheridan. Landing these. Oh, nice uppercut by Buster Douglas. Look at this. He's knocked down for the first time in his career. Mike Tyson hits the canvas. He's in big trouble. He's not going to make it. Now, the Colonel has called 10,000-plus fights, 10,000, if you don't mind, including the biggest prize fights of all time, Ali V. Foreman in the Rumble in the Jungle, the infamous Tyson Holyfield bite fight, Pacquiao V. Horn, the list goes on, and we talk about them all. But the reason Bob has been able to transcend his sport and become a household name to sports fans is because the Colonel is an entertainer. He's larger than life, he's bigger than big. He's an old-school broadcaster that prepares immaculately, but... When the big moments arrive, the notes go out the window and Bob operates on instinct, letting it all hang out. The Colonel is the man. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind. You're confused and want to know, mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye. Listen to me, time is your key. Thanks to one of Bob and my good mates, Matty Weiss from Fox Sports, for making this happen, and to Bob's son, Dennis Brooks, who hooked up the technical side of the operation. On a side note, Dennis has just produced a film in which the Colonel plays a part called All Black in the Bushes. Check that out. Okay, here's to a big life full of big risks, big stories and big laughs with a man that has a very, very big heart. This is the story of the one, the only, and there will not be another, Colonel Bob Sheridan. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Welcome to the Howie Games, a man I'm a tremendous fan of. He is the voice of boxing and has been since the mid to late 1960s. He is a star of the caper. His name is Colonel Bob Sheridan. He joins me on the Howie Games from Las Vegas in Nevada. Bob, how are you? It is wonderful to see your smiling face. You're looking good. Well, I don't know. I've lost a lot of weight since I saw you. I've had a few problems health-wise the past month or so, but... uh, I'm getting better in a hurry and uh, ready to really get back full-time into boxing. You know, I had a very lean year last year. With uh, I lost my wife. She passed away from metastatic breast cancer. Of course, they called it COVID. Nobody died here of anything but COVID <laughs> this year. No automobile accidents, no, uh, no cancer. COVID was good for all those things. It cured all those other diseases. But anyway... That aside, enough political stuff for me right now, because I know you didn't call to hear me talk about <laughs> politics in the United States, which is equally as screwed up as it is in uh, many countries around the world. Uh, anyhow, uh, yeah, so I lost about 100 pounds, and uh, I'm feeling lean, mean. I got a good pursuit to the right. I got a good pursuit to the left. I'm extremely <laughs> quick going back. I got uh, big hands, quick feet. So I'm ready to just get back into boxing, you know? 
And as long as my mind stays sharp and I get my producer, who happens to be my son, uh, uh, I call him Didi, but his name, of course, is Dennis Brooks. And uh, he produces all the things I do. And if it wasn't for him, I certainly got would have been on your show today. Well, it's funny you mentioned, Dennis, because I rang you yesterday and you told me you're watching the ball game and I said, do you think we can fire up a Zoom meeting? And uh, and you said, oh, I need to speak to Dennis and we can see Dennis there. And he is a producer, a filmmaker and a technical genius, Den, because I'll be honest with you, mate, I love your dad, I love everything he's about, but what we would say in Australia is he had bugger all chance of sorting this out by himself, I feel. Well, you should see his baby brother who's actually bigger than him. Right. And I adopted so, both of my sons many years ago, and I'm thrilled that we're all together now. And uh, there, he's besides all the things he told you, he also runs one of the biggest security companies in the world. And uh, – uh, they do very, very well, my boys. So I said, look, why don't you just come in here while I'm not feeling so well and just stay here. And we've been together now for about six months and uh, we're having a great time. I mean, it's like a fraternity house here at uh, <laughs> at, uh, at three o'clock in the morning. We say, hey, my other son, D, is a great character too. I'm sorry to hear about your wife, but Dennis, I appreciate you setting this up for you because, as I said, your man, your dad's a lot of things, but I'm not sure he could have got this done. So thank no, you, great man, right, for man, welcome, firing man. it up for I us. I appreciate you, buddy. Thank you. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate you. Hey, Howie, I can uh, assure you I would have been able yeah. you know, I could have done one <laughs> on the telephone with you, as we've probably done before. But, uh, uh, hey, by the way, I want to say hello to your mother who uh, actually calls you Mark. She does. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> M- Howie Mark. Uh, Mama, uh, thanks so much for letting your boy give me a call today. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I've, I've told you before I get nervous because she's the only one that calls me Mark, so I appreciate you calling me Howie. Hey, <laughs> mate, you, 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 you mentioned you haven't been well um, and you've been through a couple of surgeries. I'm really, really sorry to firstly hear about your wife, who I know is your soulmate. But you've well, been look at, through. Look at this a, here. A, I don't well, know if you can see wow. this, but uh, that's a, a thing to drain blood off my stomach. I had a couple of serious injuries, and uh, but anyway, I had a real rough about a uh, month. I was in uh, eleven hospitals in uh, in uh, just about thirty-two days. I'm glad you're on the improve, mate. As I mentioned at the start, um, I was lucky enough to sit next to you at a fight between Jeff Horn and Gary Corcoran and as a man that tries to be a sports commentator, the kindness you showed me that night to have a chat with me and then you said, Howie, sit next to me during this fight. The energy and intensity that you brought to that blew me away. It's one of my fondest sporting memories, sitting next to the Colonel while he was calling a world title fight. It was, uh, it blew me away. Everybody in the UK should know that the referee is from New Jersey in the United States. The judges, Levi Martinez is from New Mexico in the USA, Lisa Giampa from Las Vegas in the USA, and Dr. Lou Moret from California in the USA. So there's no home cooking tonight. Gary Corcoran will get a fair shake no matter what happens. And I've learned to love this kid over the past couple of days. And here we go. Jeff Horn for the first time defending his championship here in Brisbane Convention Center and Entertainment Center here in Brisbane, Australia. Well, you're very kind to say that. You know, it's for me, every time I sit down, because I, let's face it, I'm at the end of my career. And as long as my mind stays sharp, I can do this because I love it. 
and, and my favorite sport is baseball. I played professional baseball and rode bulls. So I was a professional in two sports. Boxing wasn't one of them. But I do have the distinction of fighting three world heavyweight champions on the same day. I went one minute each when Jimmy Ellis was the heavyweight champion of the world. Yeah. And then uh, Muhammad Ali, of course, was in the hiatus in those years. And Joe Frazier was considered the uh, heavyweight champion in, in, in New York and then two or three other states. So I get in the ring. I was doing local television in Miami at the time. And I would go to the... <laughs> I would go to the Fifth Street gym every day. Now, uh, Ali was first, and he just kind of pushed me around, and I get the use of his hand speed. And... So you're in the ring with Muhammad Ali? Oh, yeah. Well, don't forget, I was an athlete myself back in those days. I, yeah. didn't, look, I didn't look like I look now, my son. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm in there with Ali, and Ali uh, uh, could have done a number on me anytime he wanted to, but we were just playing. Don't forget, I was very close friends with these guys. In fact, uh, after, uh, on this particular day, I fought uh, Joe next. And Joe just kind of pushed me around and muscled me around. He said, go ahead, take a shot. I took a shot and he turned and I caught him on the shoulder. And, you know, he never really threw anything at me. But Jimmy Ellis was probably the best friend of mine of a lot. Mm. So Jimmy and I knew each other. Well, I said, come on, Bob. You know, we had the mouthpiece. And I didn't have any headgear on because it was for TV. And neither did Jimmy. So he says... Uh, Go ahead and try to hit me. And I caught him with a shot about maybe 40 seconds in. And I was on my keys to, in about two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> there I was, hey, I got Jimmy Ellis. I got the heavyweight champion because he was the reigning heavyweight champ. I knocked the heavyweight, boom, I'm down. I love it. So, Bob, your journey itself, we'll get to the fight you covered, etc. But just tell me a, a brief bit about your family history because you're from Irish background, yeah? That's right, yeah. Both my parents were born in Ireland. My mother was from County Mayo and my father was from uh, Cavan Longford border, right right in there. And then my grandfather was from Donegal. His last name was Doherty, grandfather. And I learned all my uh, information and knowledge of the Irish culture from my grandfather. He moved over, he was in the old IRA back in the 1900s, you know? Huh. Uh, way back in the 1900s, like 1920, 1921, which was in the uh, big IRA days, uh, the fighting for freedom fighters then, they weren't considered terrorists. I come from a nefarious background. Before we get to boxing, you're always introduced as Colonel Bob Sheridan. Ray Wheatley for Fight News. I'm here with uh, boxing legend and Hall of Famer, Colonel Bob Sheridan. How are you, Colonel? His name is Colonel Bob Sheridan. You're with the voice of boxing, Colonel Bob Sheridan. Where does the name Colonel come from? Where does the title come from? Well, I am a member of a ceremonial unit in, uh, in Boston called the Ancient and Honorable Artillery Company of Massachusetts. And the mission of this, wow. of this uh, uh, unit in this day and age is, is uh, public relations for uh, the military. So the so, uh, general... Two-star General Vahar Vartanian, Major General Vahar Vartanian, promoted me in the Yankee division of the uh, uh, National Guard as a uh, as a colonel. And uh, shortly after being Chief of Staff of the General, I told my then producer, kid by the name of David uh, Fox, that the General was going to join us for dinner. So he thought that was terrific. So the General, of course, referred to me all the time as Colonel. So. David, uh, can you use a little bit of language on this show? Of course you can. Okay, so he says, 
what's this shit, Colonel? <laughs> the general, General Bob Myers is name. And General Myers says, well, he's my colonel. He's my uh, aide de camp to the governor. But to me, he's my chief of staff. And so David started calling me Colonel. <laughs> then it kind of caught on. And I said, wait a minute. This is, this is really good because don't forget, I was working mostly international. And that's why I'm so well known in Australia, New Zealand, and other places around the world. But the yeah. f- fact of the matter is the Colonel was a great hook. And since about, that, that must have been the 80s. And there were two toys. So for the past 40 years, I've been the Colonel. And, <laughs> and I love it because I must say, Colonel, not only is it a great hook and a great name, but I'll sit there to watch a fire and I think, come on, when they announce the commentators tonight, come on, come on, there's Colonel Bob. Like, yes, the main man is on. So <laughs> as soon as I hear the Colonel is in the building, I know we're going to get entertainment. What a fight this is. I think that's oh, I can't it. I can't believe this. The cuts are too much. Horn is wow. done. He's retained the welterweight championship of the world of the WBO. The corner of Corcoran said no more. But you know the thing is, Howie, it was a great, it was a great thing because I didn't have a big network behind me. I was doing international boxing for all the networks, and I was yeah. just, when you're doing the international, you're not that well known at home. Like at home, and I was like Jim Lampley or. Or uh, let's say uh, Al Bernstein and guys like that. You wouldn't even know them, but they're the big names over here. Or I'm very big in terms of boxing people. Yes. Uh, now because of my longevity and being in seven halls of fame and all of that stuff, uh, I'm much better known today than I was back uh, back in the eighties. But uh, uh, all that aside, with all that fame and fortune and halls of fame, it still costs you a buck to get a uh, cup of coffee. <laughs> It does. Unless I'm so, in boxing circles, then they pay <laughs> me to sit with them. <laughs> so what was the first? Well, I, I can't take up hours of your time, which I'd love no, to. No, you can take so, all the time you want. Okay, I, I good. Love you know, I have great friends in Australia. Good. Well, I will take up some of your time then. So what is the first thing you ever, we call commentate, you call announce? What is the first thing you ever sat behind a microphone and started talking about in a sports sense? Oh, well, it would have been a, a, as a studio announcer. I worked with a uh, – well, see, well, here's what happened. I was play, playing professional yep. baseball in the Orioles, Baltimore Orioles organization, low-level yep. low uh, minor leagues. And they told me when they signed me, because I was in Miami, and this was the Miami Marlins and the Florida State League. And they said, look, we're, we're going to sign you for two or three weeks and see how you do, but we have a kid that's coming here to play third base. And sure enough, when the kid that they had, a kid by the name of Ray Knight was his name, when they brought him to the club, they released me. Uh, and, and immediately the general manager of the club, he had taken a, a very kind of shine to me. His name was Bill Durney. And so I got released. They signed me back to work in public relations. And Bill Durney worked with me on uh, becoming a broadcaster. And I used to do feeds from the club uh, uh, live feeds to different tele- uh, radio stations around, and I, and I get more confidence. I learned. I went back to school and took more speech, uh, uh, learning pr- to pronounce words because in the United States I have a very distinct accent. Mm-hmm. It's a Boston accent, and which is very similar to an Australian accent, so people don't pick it up over there. And same in New Zealand. So anyway, that's how I get started, and I had a little radio show. Or, uh, six o'clock in the morning uh, when FM radio hadn't even begun yet. 
I was on FM radio at six o'clock in the morning and I did a hunting, fishing, and camping show. <laughs> None of which I know anything about. <laughs> but what I did was I went to the highly arranged gun shop and I interviewed a guy for 15 minutes of the show. And then I went to Alec Gibson Day Camping Center. I interviewed him for 15 <laughs> minutes. And uh, for the fishing, I uh, had this guy who was the captain of a, a boat in Miami. Uh, his name was Ray. And Ray would take me out fishing once a week with him. So I, uh, you know, said, hey, this television, this radio stuff is pretty good. And they were my sponsors. <laughs> the name of his boat was the Sea Ray, and it was a deep sea fishing boat. And I learned to love fishing. Now I fish all the time. But uh, but anyway, uh, that's how I get started. So how did you make the connection with Don King? And uh, and I'll lead up to the Rumble in the Jungle. We'll get to that shortly. But what is that connection that you make that takes you to, to, to the level which you eventually get to? How do you meet Don King? Well, this is kind of interesting too. I was doing all the fights on radio in Miami. And when I say a lot, I probably did 8,000, maybe 9,000 radio fights because it doesn't take long when for 20 years you're doing eight or nine fights a week and we do the whole card on radio. And people loved it because it was at a time when there was no boxing on radio and none of the young broadcasters wanted to do anything but football and baseball and hockey if they're in the north. And so I I got pretty famous locally for doing boxing and, uh, and it was a very popular show. So Frankie, <clears throat> Frankie Otero, a, a Cuban out of Miami, uh, from Hialeah, Florida, was uh, going to fight Ken Buchanan, who was the reigning lightweight champion of the world. And they were going to have a fight in Miami. Hello, everybody. This is Bob Sheridan at ringside. The Miami Beach Convention Center, the crowd standing on their feet for this main event. A lightweight fight billed as an elimination fight, which will lead to a shot at the lightweight champion, Roberto Duran. They were going to bring down an announcer from New York, but in those days, the people that had contracts in New York and with the networks, they couldn't broadcast fights, so they're having a difficult time finding an independent broadcaster to do the fight. And Chris Dundee told him, we get a kid down here that can call fights better than anybody. He's got more experience than anybody. He said, how can that be possible? Because he's done 9,000 fights on radio. So, <laughs> so it's really, so we'll try him out on this fight. Frankie does not move. He's going to run into some trouble here. He can't fight with his back on the ropes. Buchanan will take command. Every time that Otero is back to the ropes, Buchanan has taken over. Buchanan with that left jab is beginning to take over at this point in the fight now in round seven. That's a good right hand. Steph, they had a good left. Now Otero is hit. The right hand dropped him. A good combination. Got him in trouble. Oh, got him with that long left hand. Counters up to four. Five. Frankie back up on his feet. They liked my work, and that company was one of the early packages of closed-circuit television. It was called Video Techniques out of Philadelphia. They did the Ali fight in, uh, in Zaire. So that's how I got the job. World Heavyweight Championship. George Foreman versus Ken Norton. 15 rounds. Hello again, everybody. Bob Sheridan along with Muhammad Ali here at ringside for the heavyweight championship of the world is at stake. I've got Muhammad Ali doing color with me, and it's George Foreman against Ken Norton. 
And Foreman uh, and Norton, of course, uh, uh, Foreman's the new heavyweight champion at this stage. And Norton had beaten Ali once, and the second fight was kind of close. Ali got the decision in Yankee Stadium, but it was close. And I knew Ali well enough to know that we could joke around. But I wanted to call the fight straight during the rounds. But there was a second-round knockout, so he had no time to really do the big promotion that they wanted for Zaire. So when uh, Foreman knocks him out in the, I believe it was the second or third round, and so now they want us, because this whole fight was only put on as a promotion for the fight coming up in Africa. Mm-hmm. So uh, they get us to stand up. Uh, you've probably seen this on, on uh, YouTube or whatever, because it's a pretty famous scene of the, the young Bob Sheridan. I wasn't the colonel yet. Uh, and I didn't get promoted till 81 or 82. And this <laughs> is 73 in Caracas. And... Uh, and Jali uh, tells me, because I, I, I say, hey, Muhammad, how does it feel to be going back home to fight? And he, and he takes exception with this. He says, what do you mean back home? He says, uh, yeah, are you making fun of Africa? And I said, yeah, I'm making fun of Africa. You always tell me that you're going back home to fight for the world title. You can't wait to get back home. He said, when I get home, I'm going to put you in a pot and cook you. Well, fight in your home territory. You couldn't be any happier the way this is coming up in September. Why would you call Africa my home territory? You've been telling me that for 10 years. Uh, that's right. And if you come over there talking like that, we'll cook you. <laughs> that's it for Muhammad Ali. If I go over to the Congo and I'll probably be there, I'm going to get cooked. Back to Colonel Bob shortly. Next up on the show, a swimmer that dominated the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Three events, three gold medals, three world records. Stephanie Rice, a wonderfully positive person who is flying in life today. Steph talks candidly about how tough it can be for athletes to transition into retirement from their sport when they still have so much life to live. Like people retire at 60, as you were just saying, and that's it. That's it. Now I'm chilling out. Um, Yes. And I was like, no, no, no. Like I'm not... I'm not going to retire and live on a beach somewhere and just kill the next 60 years of my life. Like that was probably then at that 2014 period where enough work had finished from the Olympic, you know, sponsorship, like things started to just die down in general. And that's when it kind of really all started like to hit the uh, it's over. <laughs> oh, yeah. So like what, like literally what now? Like, yes. and I had no idea. Like, I was just so lost. Describe to me lost. Um, well, I think the thing that that frustrated me the most was that I had no idea what I wanted to do because I had never considered it. Yes. And it also felt wrong. Like, um, when people would ask me, are you still swimming? And I would say no. Then the next question was always, so what do you do now? And I just have never, like, I was just couldn't answer it. And so I just felt like I was lying the whole time, uh, saying wishy-washy things. Like, I always still do a bit of speaking and, you know, Mm. I do some brand ambassador work and a little bit of coaching, which was literally those three things would take up five days of my year. So, (laughs) like, what do you... But I made it sort of fluff it up to sound okay, but really what I wanted to say was... Like, I have no idea. I I have no direction. I'm lost and it's really frustrating. That's Stephanie Rice next up on the show. Back to the Colonel. The the rumble in the jungle. When they said to you, right, you're going to Zaire, did you have any idea where it even was? Well, yeah, I looked it up on the map. I knew it was the old Belgian Congo. Right. So how long did you go there prior to the fight? 
Well, uh, there were two trips. The first trip was the, uh, don't forget, I was doing Miami Dolphin football, and I happened to be doing the Dolphins uh, uh, New York Jets game in New York, and they had a press charter flying from uh, from New York that evening. So I got on the press charter, and I made arrangements for the next week for somebody else to do the uh, the Dolphins game. And I went on, and I went on to... Uh, uh, we had we're on Icelandic Airlines of all things. We're flying to the North Pole to go to the Equatorial Africa, but that's typical of boxing. I mean, it was a lot of fun, and they're the old curmudgeons there. And in those days, you could smoke on airplanes. And a guy said, "I never smoked in my life." And the guy sitting next to me is smoking Camel cigarettes with no ah, oh, it was awful. And he's complaining about what the hell are we going to Reykjavik, Iceland? So we get off at Reykjavik, and everything calmed down after that because everybody, we're there about 6 o'clock in the morning, and everybody got hammered. I mean, really, <laughs> really, as we say in Ireland, jarred. Now, this right. is a jar. This is jarring, and when you had too much, you jar. Okay, I got it. I That's got how it. you conjugate the verb jar. <laughs> anyway, uh, so it was a lot more peaceful, and then the next stop was Treyer, Germany. <laughs> So we, wow. oh yeah, so we fly into Treya, and then Mobutu sent up his 747 to pick up the media. And, of course, his 747 was plush. And, the guys, I didn't go because that was the day we found out that uh, George Foreman was cut. Sparring less than a week before the fight, Foreman was cut above the right eye. As his handlers, Dick Sadler and Archie Moore, examined the damage, it was obvious that the showdown would have to be postponed for at least one month. And it was a fairly deep eye cut, so I, I went right back home because I couldn't be away for five or six weeks while this guy was healing. Ali was despondent at first. Look, everybody's here, the world is here, the biggest event in all history. People fly at this moment, we're talking, plane loads on the way here. Cameras are here, technicians, the world is sold out all throughout Venezuela, Peru, all throughout Mexico, Africa, England. Tickets are sold and all the money's got to be refunded. It's just a big mess. And I just wish we could do something. But certain writers, they, they had to go. Eddie Schuyler from the Associated Press, Pat Putnam from... Uh, Sports Illustrated. These names won't mean anything, but to be specific for you, I want to tell you specifics. Yes. And, and uh, so uh, I went home and continued on with the 74 uh, football season. And so anyway, uh, then in, I believe, what was it, October when the fight did come around? I forget the exact month, but it was right on the cusp of the rainy season. So it was really yeah. dangerous. Yeah, October 30, 1974. Yeah, late. So very close to the rainy season. And which was dangerous in itself. Anyway, I get there a week before and I'm treated like a king because I'm, yeah. I'm the lead announcer. Now, President Mobutu Sese Siko, president for life, knew my name, which was great. What a dictatorship this was. If you went out of the airport, you go out of the airport, if you go to the right into the, the town of Kinshasa, it was like a dirt road all the way into just about a mile outside of Kinshasa. And if you went to the left, it was a, like a a uh, super highway in Australia, you know, and, uh, huh. it was uh, out to Nacelli. So I go out to Nacelli when I first got there to check it out. And, it, you know, it's just a bunch of guys that want to hang around Muhammad. Well, I had any access I wanted to Muhammad. Any day I wanted to go out there, I could spend an hour alone with Muhammad because I had that connection with him. And Muhammad and I were friends. So I didn't need to be around Muhammad. I want to go in and get the culture of the city. So I go into this place called the Memling Hotel which was just an average sort of hotel, uh, but old, old, old 
at old school neat nice, you know? And uh, all the British press boys were there. And in Zaire at the time, there was a shortage of glass of all things. So they served the two great beers, Timbo, which was elephant beer, and Shimba, which was lion beer. <laughs> and, but they served it in, in quart-plus bottles, ice cold. It was beautiful. So I went and said, everybody, don't forget, I'm a young guy. I didn't give a shit about the fame. All I cared about was the fun. Before we get to the fight itself, you said you had incredible access to Muhammad Ali, who's arguably the biggest name in the history of sport anywhere. Five million dollars is what Foreman will be paid for this fight. Some say no fighter's effort is worth that much. But worth it or not, George Foreman is hard at work these days, earning his money, prepping for yet another fight of the century. I'm not going to destroy him. There's nothing you can... This man has been talking since he started boxing. People have broke his jaw, knocked him out. One guy knocked his leg so far up in the air, I thought he was going to take off. <laughs> and he got up and started talking. So there's no way I'm going to be able to stop him from talking. <laughs> I'm not... I'm going to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. George can't hit what his eyes can't see. <laughs> now you see me, now you don't. You think you will, but, but I know you, you won't. won't. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. It's, 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 this is going to be a good fight. I want to say that I uh, plan to make this my last fight, and I'm going to shock the whole world. I think it's befitting that I go out of boxing like I came in 10 years from the day I beat Sonny Liston, destroying another Sonny Liston who I idolized Sonny Liston. He jumps ropes like Sonny Liston. He walks around with a stared, sad face like Sonny Liston. He's awkward and slow, and he hits hard like Sonny Liston. And they think it's befitting that 1974 stage couldn't be set no better, that I retire this man just like I did Liston. Thank you, Ali. Thank you, Angelo Dundee. Is that all the time I get? Okay. I wouldn't even say arguably. I mean, there was George yeah, Best, right. there was Pele, but Pele wouldn't have been known in the United States. Uh, no. I'm sure he was known in Australia because you have, uh, well, we you have football over there, yeah. not just Australian rules, but uh, soccer and whatnot. So, what was it about Ali from your experience with him? What allowed him to transcend boxing and become this global figure that people still, even when he's passed away, adore the man? Well, first off, in those years, he wasn't adored because he was brash, he was outspoken. Uh, half the people loved him and most of white America didn't, didn't really like him. There's a mm. big di- difference in the, in the racial time period in the 70s than there is now. But Ali, what was it about Ali from your experience? Ali was an infectious personality. I predict that whenever the fight is set, he might not show up. I just want all helicopters guarded. Private boats, private jets entering this place. I want the airport. I'm serious. I want the president. I want all of you Zions to be on guard. Watch all strange boats slipping in. It might take him out. Watch the bus station. Watch everything. Watch the watch the elephant caravans. He might sneak up an elephant. Watch everything moving. Unidentified objects leaving Zaire. The man won't out. The man won't out. He was very childlike. He liked children. He liked, he had no vices other than women. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. And not only that, he could fight. Did you watch him train? What was it about him that made him who he was in the ring? Well, he just messed around in training. And in in Angelo didn't train him. He just put him through the, just timed it and, and whatnot. Stick it. 
keep dancing and sticking. Sidestepping. Bounce them off the ropes. Dancing and sticking. Beat them all night. Time out by seven rounds. You're gonna be so game in seven rounds. Time out. Bring him home. Get my legs ready. I'll be dancing all night. Then, after everyone would leave, he'd go into this back room at the old Fifth Street gym, which is basically just this side of a latrine, a toilet. And But it's where all the fighters came to. And he would go in. You know those long training tables? Yep. He, would, he would sit on the edge of that and do sit-ups off the back of it. So his, his trunk and head was below the table. And he'd do a thousand of them every day. Huh. And that became a big factor that nobody knew about his training methods. He had a guy by the name of Louis Soria, and he was his key trainer. He was a Cuban, uh, old-fashioned time boxing, and he rubbed liniment on his stomach, and he'd do them in sets of 50. He'd start out doing it in sets of 100, and when he'd get to uh, about maybe 300, he'd have to just go down to 50 at a time, and then he'd, he'd strain up to 100, but boy, did he work. And, of course, wow. his, his core was in unbelievable shape. So when he decided in, in Zaire to pull the, uh, the rope it up, and, be, and George was, of course, George was hitting him most on the elbows, but even the shots that he took to the midsection didn't hurt him a bit. So the fight itself, bizarrely, it was 3 a.m., wasn't it? it was, Africa yes. in Zaire because of the time zone. What, what was the – I think they was reported 60,000 there. We'll get to the TV audience. But but so you're there. You're ready to call the fight. What was the atmosphere? Because the, the film of it, it just seems to be pulsating, Colonel. Well, it was, and here's how I opened the fight. From President Mobutu Stadium in Kinshasa, Zaire, Don King Productions presents the heavyweight championship of the world, Muhammad Ali versus the champion – George Foreman. What a fight this will be from the deepest, darkest part of Africa. Hello again, everybody. I'm the Colonel Bob Sheridan, and welcome to President Mobutu Stadium. And we welcome, of course, Don King and, of course, President Mobutu himself. Let's get ready to go. My co-commentator is David Frost. We've got Jim Brown, the football player, and we've got James Brown, the godfather of soul, working with us as well. So let's get started. And here's the entrance, and in comes, here comes Muhammad Ali, and they're going crazy here. And that's how he's got to open it up. His handler, Angelo Dundee, brings him in. And there you hear the sound of Ali Bumaye. That's what the local people say. And you can see Ali, he's getting a standing ovation from some 70,000, we estimate, in attendance here as he dances behind the American flag. So James Brown, the godfather of soul, was there as oh, yeah, well. You don't have to worry about James Brown because he was blasted on, uh, uh, James was blasted on, I think, Quaaludes, I think, because he says to me at one stage, <laughs> okay. he says okay. to me, he says, man, Bob, he says, seems like you calling them punching before that happened. <laughs> so they shut down his microphone. And that was, that was the end of him. So the, it was reported at the time, Colonel, it was the largest ever live sports broadcast audience in the history of the world. They estimated a billion people 
were watching that. Did you think about the numbers at all or did you just get in there with all that experience and go pow? No, it doesn't make any difference if you're going to a billion or you're going to a small, you know, say you're going to the Ivory Coast. It doesn't make any difference. Your preparation is the same and your everything is the same. I was aware, yeah, I know it was a big telecast, but I had no idea. Here we are, what, 60 years or more later and we're still talking about yeah. that fight? I had yeah. no conception of how big it was because I was there. There can be no more pure form of sport than a heavyweight championship fight when two individuals, finely tuned athletes, climb into the ring. This time, the championship is at stake and $5 million will be paid to both fighters. Ali ready, Foreman ready, we're waiting for the opening bell. Round one, Ali bouncing around, shifting left to right. George moves slow, Ali gets the first punch in, a light right hand taken on the forehead by George Foreman, the champion. You know, I was in the middle of it. I'd already done the Super Bowl in 72 with the undefeated team. I covered National Hockey League Finals, the biggest sport in America at that time was the World Series of Baseball. I did all that. And doing championship fights was kind of what I did. And, you know, I don't have one souvenir from Zaire. And you imagine what they'd they'd be worth today? Yeah, but I... I guess the souvenir you've all given us is that amazing soundtrack to the biggest fight. That's you. That's you are part of history. Yeah, there, actually too. what happened in the final round is this off the ropes, off the ropes comes Ali. Foreman is a, totally exhausted. Ali lands a left to the liver. George starts to spin in the center of the ring. Ali hits him on the shoulder with the right hand, another left to the jaw, and he's tumbling in the middle of the ring like a bull that's been wounded by a sword, and down goes the champion. Three, four, five, six. I don't think he can get up. The count's up to seven, eight, nine. We have a brand new world champion. For the first time in history, Ali recovers or regains the heavyweight championship of the world. And that's how it ended. David Frost, who never did a boxing match in his life, says, Ali wins by knockdown. Jeez. But he was a great interviewer. <laughs> this is the most joyous scene ever seen in the history of boxing. This is an incredible scene. The place is going wild. Muhammad Ali has won. Muhammad Ali has won by a knockdown. By a knockdown. You've given me tingles um, going back there. Um... Was there a party that night, or are you just home to the hotel and you're out of there? Like, what happens post well, first the, the off, rumble as soon in the jungle? As the fight was over, the heavens opened up. I oh, mean, right. at exactly that time, the monsoon hit. And within five minutes, the dugouts in the arena were flooded. And our cables, and, well, you've been at big fights, and you know what it's like. Yeah. Uh, all the cables and sound and everything that's involved in video cables. And don't forget, this was at the, the first time that all four communication satellites were used simultaneously, and there are only four at the time. I, there's thousands of them now. So there's only four up there, and you, you the, the colonel was using them all. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so we went to a billion people live, and since then I go, yeah, I know. <laughs> but in, in reality, I don't give a shite. All I care about is the bag. <laughs> 
So what was the bag? What was the bag for calling that fight? Yeah, I made over 100000 between the live telecast and the, uh, and the replay the next week in the movie theaters. Okay, that's good numbers in, the, in well, 1974. In, that, in that time, 1974, I was only making about, uh, oh, in my local show, I was making about forty grand, and with everything else, I was only making about 60000 But don't forget, oh. I was only 30 years old. Yeah, I was born so, in 1944, so this is 1974. I was just 30 years old. That was a lot of money. But as I told you, uh, Howie, I poured it all back into my career and made a bigger yeah. shot out of myself than actually I was. In other words, so I was a professional con man. <laughs> That's the end of the Colonel Part A. Plenty more coming your way in Part B. Listener.